This is Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Let's get into it. All right, guys, today we've got a special return guest to the podcast. Her name is Holly McKay. So she's an author, journalist, war correspondent, and humanitarian. And she's also the best-selling author of Only Cry for the Living, Memos from Inside the ISIS Battlefield. That was our 2021 book of the year for here at Undaunted Life. And this is her fourth appearance on our podcast here. So she's been on episodes 188, 222, and 270. And she's also got a new book out now called Afghanistan, The End of the U.S. Footprint and the Rise of the Taliban Rule. And so that book is not a as much a, and there I was type of a book. This is a book that she wrote, but then it's mainly meant to serve as kind of a coffee table book. So her photographer that was with her over in Afghanistan before the fall, during the fall and after the fall, just took tons and tons of pictures and they put it together into this absolutely gorgeous book. You guys absolutely have to check it out. But in this particular interview, we don't get as much into the fall. I mean, I I highly, highly recommend that you guys listen to episodes 222 and 270. If you haven't been listening to our show for very long, go back to those episodes because in Episode 222, that I was talking to her during the fall of Afghanistan, as in she's on the second floor of this like apartment complex or hotel or something like that. And the Taliban is driving through the street, shooting their guns in the air and she held it together. But I mean, it was kind of touch and go there for a little bit, whether or not she would actually make it out, uh, out of there, get out of there safely. And then episode 270, we talk a whole lot more about what was happening there at that time. But in this particular interview, we talk about kind of, you know, where the whole idea for a book like this comes from, kind of what the current status is of the Afghan people and kind of like why people People aren't really focusing on it anymore, but also she doubles down on just the corruption that she knows of and that she saw from uh, the the Afghan government and how they were using U.S. taxpayer dollars basically to make themselves rich, but not actually help the people of Afghanistan or help them fight against the Taliban. And then we get into kind of where she's going from here and what she's going to end up focusing on in the future. Again, we'll keep having her back on this podcast because she keeps going to all these places in the world, these pockets of absolute human suffering and depravity to make sure to remind us that those things are happening out there, but also to tell the people, uh, tell the stories of the people that couldn't tell these stories for themselves. So we always enjoy having her on. So we're not going to keep her from you any longer. So without further ado, let's get into it. Holly McKay. Welcome back to Undaunted Life of Man's podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. I think this might be your fourth appearance. It's your fourth, maybe fifth appearance on this show. Like that's got to be some sort of a record. I mean, I don't know. Do we need to just do the Holly and Kyle show from here on out? Or can we just still stick to maybe once or twice a year? Uh, I'm sure you've got way more cool people to interview than me. (laughs) We've got other cool people. We certainly have other cool people, but uh, I don't want to take for granted that everyone in my audience is familiar with your work. Even since the last time you've been on here, we've expanded quite a bit. So for those in my audience that are not familiar with you and your work, how about you give us the 30,000 foot view of who you are and what you do? So I am a, I guess, world and war reporter, really. Um, I spend a lot of time in different conflict zones, uh, looking at very different issues when it comes to war, both kind of on the military side, but my real passion is the really the human side and, and taking those human stories and trying to make sense of of conflicts and and foreign policy issues and and things that affect um, us even here in in the US um, and really sort of take those micro stories and and paint that macro picture and hopefully bring sort of some unique uh, perspectives to the table. 
And so I wasn't planning on asking this, and I don't know that I've asked on any of the other times that we've talked, but obviously you have been around a, a great deal of depravity. You've seen a lot of loss and you've seen a lot of pain, and we'll certainly get more into that when we talk about your new book. But do, do you almost feel like you, you have to actively disengage from the emotion and the depravity around you so that you can do your job? Because I would say for most of the people I know, including me, I, I think it I might find it difficult to compartmentalize my sadness or my anger or my just my outrage out, out of what I'm seeing. Does that make sense? Absolutely. I think um, you have to have a degree of compartmentalization, but I also do think it's very important to to always view things really primarily with the lens of compassion. And I think traditionally we look at war reporters and, and the idea of it was that they had to be sort of very removed and, you know, very, um, you know, sort of straight down the line and I think that's not really what people look for anymore. I think when people are seeing news reports or reading a story, they they want that they want that compassion, they want that emotion. Um, and so I think a lot of the sort of conjunctions that we had in the past with needing to have this wall, I think a lot of those have really been broken down and I think the best stories that you can do is when you do show emotion and you are part of that process and and you are human at the end of the day and I I certainly don't adhere to those kind of old school conventions. I think it's important to have human reactions um, to situations that we should be having human reactions to but, but it does, you know, there is a a delicate balance that you have to have with it. You can't be sort of so um, fixated in in the process that you can't effectively do the work. A little bit like a, a trauma surgeon or somebody like that. And I'm certainly not comparing myself to somebody like that. But you know, you have to have that compassion to to want to save your client or to want to to do the best work for them. But you have to step back a little bit so that you can sort of function in order to be able to do that. Well, you can see all sides of that whenever, if you follow you on social media or if you've read Only Cry for the Living, that was the book that we talked about. That was our 2021 book of the year that you are carrying the narrative of what you're reporting on, but then you are also expressing that you do feel emotions at these different points because it's kind of hard to witness the things that you've witnessed and then just feel absolutely nothing. That would make you a sociopath, which would make you a really awkward person to hang out with. But hey, it's just kind of one of those deals like you have to have all of that in order to really carry your audience into that. But I do want to talk about a new book that you have that is out now, guys, as of the recording of this podcast. It is in the show notes. It's called Afghanistan, the end of the U.S. footprint and the rise of the, ta of, of the Taliban rule. And so the thing that's interesting about this book, Holly, is it's not just a and there I was book, right? You write the word for the book, but it's almost like the main purpose of it is that it's a coffee table book, you know, a coffee table. Book. Yeah. And so the, yeah. And so the pictures are from your photographer that was over there with you named Jake Simkin. So I guess where did the idea come from to do this book to, because to my knowledge, there's not a coffee table style book with these amazing pictures. I just looked at the, the book here recently, just these amazingly gorgeous pictures. I don't know that there is one that kind of details just before the Taliban took over Afghanistan and then what was going on thereafter. Yeah, absolutely. So um, my objective, and this was Jake and I's sort of objective before we moved back to Afghanistan, and both of, both of us had spent uh, significant periods of time there previously. Um, and this was, you know, during COVID time. So we're looking at the beginning of 2021. Um, and we both decided that that's where we wanted to sort of go and spend the good chunk of the rest of that year. Um, I was no longer working sort of as a, a full-time journalist um, and Jake was sort of always freelance and he was based in Australia. So um, we made the decision that we wanted to do a coffee table book and I, I always thought that was a really 
nice idea that would be something different from just sort of a straight book like I'd already only craft for living had just come out um jake's a beautiful photographer who i think never really has had his work showcased the way that it should be and um so we yeah we sort of went that was the initial intention of even going back there and we sort of thought we'd be there documenting the u.s withdrawal and then the afghan government you know the first few months of them sort of trying to stand on their own so to speak um and of course you know a couple of weeks into being there is when um the fall sort of suddenly happened and we sort of found ourselves the story as opposed to being documenting the story so it was a very strange time um but i think for both of us there was no I mean, everybody was sort of leaving and, and getting on the planes and things. I think for both of us, there was no hesitation in that we were going to stay, which I think I was the only kind of American journalist that actually did stay for, for the several months after that. Um, but to me, you know, that was that it felt like very much a duty, not only to the book, but to to telling um, the truth of what was kind of happening uh, rather than trying to speculate on, on social media or even listen to, um, I mean, of course, Afghan accounts are very important, but at the time there were a lot of information that wasn't particularly accurate. Um, so I think that was just very important. And and then, of course, if you see in the book, you, you sort of do see this sort of dramatic um, transformation. You sort of see that the, that week before the fall and then you see the fall and then you see sort of these strange few months after where you're suddenly the Taliban is your neighbor and, um, you know, all sorts of crazy things are happening. And also it was the first time that you were able to really travel. Um, before that, it was you know, far too dangerous. You couldn't go on roads. You couldn't really travel. There was a few different provinces you could fly to, but it was fairly restricted. Um, and suddenly the whole sort of country was opened up to us and we could travel by road literally to everywhere. So you really get a glimpse of, of pretty much, you know, almost every province of Afghanistan in this book and parts of it that I'm sure um, a lot of people could never have imagined belong to Afghanistan because it is an incredibly beautiful place. Um, and each province is so different. And I think that's what's so remarkable about it is uh, you just sort of get this incredible insight into a place that previously throughout the 20 years that the U.S. was there was just very off limits. So let's talk about some of the shots that actually were in the book. So was it something like you and Jake were setting out to get particular shots? Were you just taking shots as they came to you? Were there shots that you really, really wanted that you weren't able to get? Kind of take me through that. I mean, I think it was really a matter of I was working on sort of stories and things at the same time um, and writing and, you know, Jake and I would go out, we'd be with our fixing a weed and, and our driver. And it was just sort of a constant, um, you know, Jake was constantly taking photos and I was working on stories and we sort of coming together for that. And then when um, it sort of came time, when I came back and I started to put the book together, that that was sort of my role is I had to go through just thousands of photographs that he took and start to craft a narrative of my head of what I could write about and what photos I thought would have the best stories or what photos I thought would be um, most interesting to the reader. And so that was sort of a big process of, of culling in itself. And, and we sort of divide the book up into four sections. So I had to really think about how I could do what pictures I could give the sort of the most justice to. And so that was sort of a, that was the process with that, um, which was, which was an interesting one because there was literally just hundreds and hundreds of incredible photographs that I would have loved to have been part of the book, but you know, we do have limitations. So I think there is around 140 pictures in there. So it's sort of a good cross section. 
culling is an art that most people wouldn't uh, assume that it is an art, but I've been married to a photographer for about 15 years. And when you have all these photos and you need to cull it down to the ones that tell the story of a wedding or of an event or of a time period, like it, it's kind of, it's kind of tough to, to get it down to that and make sure that you're also expressing yourself in the narrative that you're wanting. But you mentioned this just a second ago, Holly, but in the book you describe I guess the fear and the hope that the Afghan people were feeling before the Taliban took back com complete comp control of the country. And so fear that they would actually take back control and the hope that the Americans and, and the, the, the allies would basically keep that from happening. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Because I don't think that people really think about much. They, they think about the U.S. withdrawing. They think about the Taliban. But then sometimes they forget about what the Afghans themselves were feeling on the ground before it officially changed hands. Yeah, I mean, I think it was just this very strange time where there was, you could sort of sense that it was happening, but there was still a huge degree of collective denial. Mm. Um, and you really just didn't know which way to think. I mean, on one hand, you could have people, officials that were telling me, oh, this is not going to happen, this absolutely won't happen. Uh, right up until I remember being in Mazar when it fell, it was a Saturday afternoon, and you know, two hours before the fall, I still had people telling me, no, 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 it'll be fine. I mean, these are intelligence officials in Afghanistan, so it sort of shows you that disconnect. Um, and then you had the people that were out in the street, the, the guy that works at the, uh, you know, the kebab store, and he had a better sense of what was going on than I think that a lot of these officials down in Kabul did. So um, it sort of just is a bit of a microcosm of what a mess Afghanistan actually was toward the end and how little, I think, communication and understanding that there was, um, you know, between the US, between Afghans themselves, um, and just sort of this, I think for a lot of people in Afghanistan's a very young country, a lot of them had really just grown up with American presence there, and they didn't know any difference. So they were just very much up until that last moment, believing that the US would not let that happen. Um, but of course it did, and that was sort of inevitable. I think the way that the withdrawal happened was obviously terrible, but at the same time, it's, you know, I've had a, a quite a bit of time to reflect and I've been back to Afghanistan since then. I was back a few months ago, um, you know, and it's hard and I sometimes think maybe I'm callous in saying this, but Afghan, the Afghans didn't fight the way that they should have. And we can blame the U.S. all day and we can say, but, 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 but when you have that sort of systemic corruption, I mean, I've, the Afghan, Afghans had every weapon, every opportunity to fight, and they, they didn't at the end of the day. I remember uh, days before the fall just seeing these soldiers just leaving their bases. And I said, where are you going? And they said, oh, we're going home. And that, as we know, that you know, the U.S. cannot do the fighting for you. So it's difficult to say, and I always feel terrible sort of saying that, but at the end of the day, I think it's easy to blame America and easy to blame these places, but at the end of the day, the Afghans do have to take some level of responsibility for their country. It is their country, and and acknowledge the fact that that when we look at those evacuation planes, why was there a bunch of, of military-aged men on those planes? I didn't see women. I didn't see children. I saw a bunch of men in their twenties and thirties. And you can't beat a force like Taliban if you're if you're running away. So I think that is an unfortunate reality that you know that it's taken me. I've had to grapple with too because my my heart is very much with the Afghans, but we also have to look at these things fairly pragmatically and and look at when if we are going to go into countries in a long term basis, 
um, you know, what infrastructure is available and the willingness to, to fight for themselves. And I think, you know, beyond that, I also recognize that it was hard for Afghans to fight for a government that really did not have their back. And this was an incredibly corrupt government, one of the most corrupt governments that I've ever encountered in any country that I've ever worked in. And when that corrupt government is just stealing money that is should be going to the Afghan people, it really should come as no surprise that a country falls apart. So, Holly, I appreciate you talking about it that way because, again, you use the word callous, but it's not as that that it's callous because you're coming at it from a very informed perspective. It's not like you're just reading left wing or right wing news and then making your decisions and then spewing it out there on Instagram. You obviously have on the ground experience, but in the new book, Afghanistan, you talk about how much money the U S taxpayer paid in order to fund the war and also how easily all of that was wiped out whenever, whenever we pulled out, but also you hit on as what you just alluded to these backroom deals that went down because of the Afghan government, deciding to acquiesce to the Taliban demands well before the complete withdrawal of the U.S. troops. Because again, I think we get this timeline to where it's like, okay, the Taliban decide, you know, now's our time. Let's go ahead and march on down and, you know, take over all these cities. But for... I don't know, would it be weeks or months leading up to that time period? It was the actual government of Afghanistan that was acquiescing to what was going on with the Taliban. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, I mean, the government from day one was, you know, stealing money. Money was never going to where it was supposed to be. And and, and ultimately, Afghan soldiers paid the price for that. You More than 100 soldiers were dying a day in the heat of this battle. I mean, it's, it's sick. And that was a lot of the time because people were stealing money, that they were never getting the sort of equipment they needed, they were never getting the clothing they needed, they were being sent up into snow mountains without proper gear, just little stupid things like that that were costing lives. Um, and I think the US really chose to turn a blind eye to it for the longest time. It was not that the US wasn't aware of the corruption, but there was absolutely zero accountability to it. Um, it was just sort of considered systemic as opposed to being really, I think, what was the root cause. I mean, it wasn't that the Afghans were not capable fighting um, you have a country of um, that was more than capable of, of fighting back however you know 50,000 Taliban um, they had air power they had everything you know the Taliban didn't have but that they they didn't I think have that zest for fighting um, and that really came down to I think when you've got to believe in what you're fighting for and if you don't believe in your government and, and your country then it is very hard to find that motivation at the end of the day you are going to run away um, to protect yourself and your family as opposed to giving yourself to a higher cause which is what it takes to to win a war and i think um the government just could have continued to steal money over the years and to absolutely disgusting point that people were going to just do what was right for themselves and so if the sort of the taliban is offering you um an amnesty to get out with your family so that you don't get killed you're going to leave your men to basically be slaughtered and you're going to run away before anyone really realizes what was happening and you see that time and time and again in in every province that happening right down to the president uh getting on a, a, a helicopter and leaving um without even telling the u.s that he was doing that and essentially just handing over the entire country to the Taliban before um, there was any real sort of um, ability to put any other sort of checks or balances in place or to get the people out that needed to get out. Um, and these are things that the administration really should have thought about um, before it kind of decided to have this very um, strange sort of date of September 11 of withdrawing. Um, and I think we saw that in Afghanistan in 2011 when you set a specific date 
the enemy just sort of says, okay, fine, I can wait it out another few months. Um, and unfortunately, we saw that same mistake repeated in Afghanistan, where it was like, we're going to be out by September 11. And of course, you know, the Taliban, that was, that was music to their ears. They had to, uh, they had, they knew exactly how much time they needed to negotiate those deals and, and to sort of swoop right in when the timing was right. So again, it was, um, I don't, I don't blame the US for wanting to get out of Afghanistan. I think that when we look at the history of war and occupation, I don't know that being there long term has, has done any good. Um, but there obviously needed to be a lot more in place for that to happen. And I think um, the way that the withdrawal was structured obviously was pretty, um, pretty heartbreaking, really. So that's really interesting, Holly, uh, again, just talking from your perspective, but there was actually a quote towards the end of, the, end of your book here that I think is very interesting. It's this, whether you agreed with the war or did not, we can all collectively agree that the way it was ended is as shameful as it is heartbreaking. While we cannot wipe the gore from our hands, what we can do is continue to support those left behind, empty handed and afraid. So let's talk about those that are left behind empty handed and afraid because again, and I played a part in this, a lot of people played a part in this, there was so much outrage during August of 2021 and that outrage has just waned because we've had presidential elections and we've had midterms and we've had balloons flying through the sky and we've had another war break out in Ukraine and all these different things. But what is the current state of what's going on on the ground right now in Afghanistan with the Afghan people? I just think it's, you know, it's obviously, it's, it's freezing in Afghanistan at the moment. It's just a very dismal place. I mean, there are such few opportunities for people to be able to work or to really do anything. Um, I think that it's just, it's, it's a hard place to sort of get by. I think especially for the women and the children. I mean, they're the ones that are, are extremely vulnerable. They're the ones that are suffering right now. The women can't go to their jobs. They can't go to school. They can't go to university. I mean, there's such little hope for them that it's heartbreaking. And of course, children are um, affected in all sorts of ways as well from the sort of lack of medical resources um, to the struggles for food and just, you know, families that maybe were sort of you know, middle class by Afghan standards are, you know, reading out of trash now. So uh, you have to look at that and, and just think that is sort of a failure on every level to protect some of the most vulnerable people in society. And I think it's so interesting because people on on this side of things, people in America, uh, regardless of your political persuasion, we always pretend that we care about the little guy or pretend about the, the person that's being, you know, unjustly uh, ridiculed or where there's just some sort of overall injustice happening. But here recently I talked to Yeonmi Park about she would tell these people that had a lot of influence what was going on in North Korea and they would lament and they would cry, but then they wouldn't do anything from there. It was like they're lamenting and they're, they're crying about it publicly. It was almost performative. But it's also well known that Afghanistan sits atop you know, an embarrassment of natural riches. So just an unbelievable amount of natural resources. And you talk about this in the book, gold, copper, iron, lithium, or hydrocarbons and more stuff like that. And now it looks like China is poised to take over those resources if they haven't already taken over some of those very, very important resources. So can you tell us and maybe set the record straight about what the Chinese influences is with the Taliban right now in Afghanistan? 
So China has always had a, an influence with the Taliban and the Mazinac, which is the big copper mine that has just, you know, the, the massive resources of copper. They've had that contract since 2008. So this was, I mean, you could look at this and also say this is ludicrous. This is at a time that the U.S. is essentially occupying a country. At that point, we had, you know, 150,000 troops in the country. And yet... The U.S. sort of stood by and let the Afghan government give a contract to China. You can look at that and think that's pretty freaking stupid too. But anyhow, um, China never actually sort of developed that mine because of the security situation, because the Taliban were continuing to attack the area. So it kind of sat there. And also, copper, you have to remember, it didn't have the value in 2008 that it has now. With smart cars and phones and all these things we have now that rely on copper, that wasn't such a thing in 2008. Um, But now that it is, and China technically still has this contract to 2030. Um, So it's really just them at the moment trying to nut out an agreement. I think they are still hesitant with the security situation and doing business with the Taliban can be um, a little bit of an arbitrary process because they do run on their own, um, they do run on their own rules. So I think that is still being worked out. But I think China has sort of a strong business tie. We see this around the world with their uh, initiatives in building um, roads and bridges, but essentially it's it's sort of a loan to own, um, and you sort of see that influence coming into Afghanistan. But I think the Taliban, perhaps slightly to their credit, are pushing back or are very concerned about any foreign country um, kind of taking away their sovereignty and, and telling them what to do. So I think the Taliban are very aware of that, even with China. And I know one um, one sort of sticking point was. <coughs> that China wanted them to expel all the Uyghurs that were living in Afghanistan. Afghanistan has a significant Uyghur population. um, And of course, uh, China thinks these people are all extremists and terrorists. But from my understanding, the Taliban really did push back against that and say, no, we're not. We don't have terrorists in our country. There's no need uh, to send anybody home. So that is maybe one, hopefully, that they do stick to that principle Um, but I do know that was a a sticking point so it's sort of a mixed bag with China I think on one hand there are things moving forward but I also think it isn't this smooth sailing relationship I think there's a lot of differences between uh, those two kind of regimes um, that I don't think they have particularly worked out just yet so it's a it's a fractious relationship Yeah, they're not the typical bedfellows that you would maybe have uh, given for either side but as we look forward into the future and again we're just we're just speculating here. We have no earthly idea, but 10 years from now, again, we were there for 20, but 10 years from now, what group will be ruling Afghanistan? Is the Taliban still in power? Will there be some other force that has come in and taken things over? Is there going to be like a pseudo shared government? Like, what do you see happening in the next decade? I see the Taliban in power. I don't see any reason to think that there would be any other group willing to sort of do the work or the strength in numbers. I think if all the Afghans were willing to sort of band together and and um, and do what was necessary, you would have a chance. But I don't, don't I don't see that happening. I think most Afghans are sort of fixed on getting out of the country um, as opposed to staying in the country and sort of standing up and, and fighting for a better country. Um, so I really don't see that changing anytime soon. I, I don't think I don't see a foreign country sort of unless I think even if there was sort of another 9-11 style attack, I don't see the U.S. necessarily going back into Afghanistan, given what we know of the failures of Afghanistan. So, I mean, it's a little pessimistic at this point, but I see Afghanistan under the Taliban rule in 10 years. 
Um, and I just, what I really hope is that Afghanistan, I mean, we don't want another war in Afghanistan. And so even if a group was to rise up, that would, that would be another war. And Afghanistan has really been in a perpetual state of war since the 70s. So um, in a way, you know, unfortunately, it, you know, to have that little, at least a little bit of stability. And, and mind you, Afghanistan still has a huge amount of attacks. I mean, I'm talking every other day there's a suicide bombing. We may not hear it about it in the news anymore, but it's there. And sometimes that might be ISIS, but I also think sometimes it's uh, dissident factions of the Taliban because the Taliban is not this monolithic group. It's got a variety of interests. You've got the Haqqanis, you've got the Kandaharis, you've got the people aligned to Pakistan. And I think we can't underestimate the Pakistan Pakistan's role in in trying to and again it, it can't control every faction of the Taliban I think it thought that it could but it can't um, so you do have many dissident factions so I think Afghanistan unfortunately is always going to be under this perpetual banner of attacks and and um, you know you, you're living on luck really and but avoiding large-scale war um, I hope for for the sake of Afghanistan, I don't know that how much more conflict a country and its people can really take. And um, and that is just, it's a, there's not a lot of great solutions for Afghanistan. Um, and it's it's a shame because you know, there's certainly at one point there were um, some very promising things and it's a country that I love and, and it, it holds a special place in my heart for sure. Well, you can certainly see that. And I'm reminded of a quote from earlier in your book where you say Afghans survive because they have to and they survive because they want to resilience. And I mean, it, you'd be hard pressed to come up with a better word to describe the Afghan people, regardless, again, regardless of the political persuasion or the motives of the people describing what's happening and the plight of the Afghan people that are there right now. It is such an unbelievably resilient group of people. And it's something that us in America or really any westernized nation that we don't really have to deal with the same level of depravity and pain and poverty and just, I mean, they live their life looking over their shoulder and it's just, it's not any way to live. So it's, it's absolutely heartbreaking and there's not really a great way to segue away from that. But again, guys, the book Afghanistan is in the show notes. You can go ahead and check that out. But I'm curious about where you're going next. Cause you said, you know, you've been to Afghanistan here within the last few months. I'm assuming that's not going to be your last trip to that country, but I know that you have other interests and other things that you're focusing on right now. But in terms of your work as a war or world correspondent, where are you focused on next? So I have a, a sh I'm, I'm leaving um, in a couple of days to do some work in the Middle East, um, and then I have some work in um, in Asia as well and different places. But I'm also working on some domestic projects as well, um, just looking at issues uh, within the United States, um, obviously involving uh, different sort of um, abuses and I think things that could be highlighted here. I think. Um, yeah, there's a lot of things here that, that we have to look at and address as well. And I think it's really important, you know, for me at the end of the day, you know, I love traveling, I love being in different places, but at the end of the day, it's really about the story and where I can highlight uh, things that should be highlighted. And um, i doing a lot more work with trauma victims as well, which is something very close to my heart. So sort of doing a lot more of that here. And um and and just sort of finding those stories I think that need to be told whether they're here or abroad so that's sort of my my focus at the moment so is there a place that you have not been able to cover yet that you would really like to because it's kind of weird because you've you've been in Afghanistan and Ukraine in the last few years and so obviously you're in these hotbeds of, of all this craziness and war and, and terror and things like that but is there a place in the world that maybe is 
so impossible to get into, but you would like to get in there to see what's going on, or, or maybe some place that we're not even paying attention to that has some level of depravity that you would like to report on? Gosh, there's there are actually so many. Mm. Um, I think there are a lot of things happening in different parts of Africa that I'd really like to cover um, that I just sort of haven't in my career just because the right opportunities haven't aligned. Um, but I think a lot of things there, you know, with children and women and child soldiers and um, issues like that, that I think are sort of hugely important, um, they definitely need to be highlighted. Um, I'd like to go back to a lot of the places I've worked in in the past, Burma, Venezuela. Um, I'd like to also try a lot of new places. I think um, there are incredible stories in every country, and I think again, it's not—it's not about the conflict always. It's not about the bang bang. It's finding where I feel that I can do justice to the story or the people's stories that aren't being told. Um, and so I think those exist everywhere. And I think for me. Um, Finding them in, in sort of a lot of the countries that you don't always think of, I think, is also very key. I think that we tend to get fixated on certain things when they're happening in the news, um, and then it's hard to to sort of... We easily forget that there are equal or much worse sort of atrocities going on. I mean, the, heart, the earthquake in, in Syria and in Turkey, which... I lost some friends in that. I mean, that was just heartbreaking. You're looking at 50,000 people dead, and it really gets very little coverage compared to Ukraine or to other places. And they just, what people are living in every day. I mean, I was just talking to a friend of mine there, and there he told me, you know, they're sitting outside with his family again because they're expecting another strong earthquake and it's snowing. And just these, you know, his story just broke my heart about. They have nowhere to go. And he's begging me, you know, sending me his CV, saying, if you know of anyone who can give me a job. And, and this was someone who lost their house already in Syria, that their house was bombed, and then they had to flee. And then they built a new life for themselves. And now their house and absolutely everything they own is destroyed. And I look at what it's like every day for them. And I look at, you know, things that I complain about in life. And I just think, oh my gosh, get it together. Because... It's just, again, it's this resilience and to want to just keep going when you can continually lose everything you have. And I think it's those stories that are so, so important and, and we fixate um, so much on, on, on countries and, you know, even with Ukraine, I mean, what's happening there is tragic, but there is a lot of tragedy in the world. And I think that um, we need to kind of look a little bit beyond the myopic vision of one war. And that's why I think the work that you're doing and the stuff that you continue to focus on is so important. That's why we will continue to have you back on here to remind us of those things. Because, I mean, how many guys in my audience or gals are, that are listening to this right now, have, when's the last time you heard about what happened in Syria and Turkey with the earthquake? Have you even heard about it? Because I guarantee you, I could walk into a coffee shop or a random store right now and talk to random people about, hey, did you hear about what happened in Syria and Turkey? People would look at me, you know, like I had a thumb growing out of the side of my forehead, like they would have no idea what was going on on. And so there is a little bit of fatigue. You can, you can only have so much empathy and only pay attention to human suffering around the world so much without it absolutely affecting you in every cell of your body. But it is still something that we need to focus on, not just the stuff that the New York Times finds uh, appropriate to put on their headlines. But Holly McKay, we've gone everywhere in this conversation as we normally do, but that's all for me. Is there anything else you want to get off your chest? Thank you so much for having me and, and your support. I really appreciate it and, and all your listeners. So thank you. Holly McKay, thank you for coming back on Undaunted Life, a man's podcast.
There you go, guys. I hope you enjoyed the return appearance of Holly McKay. But before we let you go, we are going to do a quick resilience boost. At Undaunted Life, our mission is equipping men to push back darkness with content that forges spiritual, mental, and physical resilience. So the links I've got for you today, I've got a link to Holly's Substack, her website, a link to where you can buy your copy of Afghanistan, the end of the U.S. footprint, and the rise of the Taliban rule, and also a link to Only Cry for the Living. Thank you guys for listening to this episode. Wherever you're listening to this, please subscribe, rate, and leave us a positive five-star review. If you want to come speak live at your event or on your podcast, just shoot me an email to info at undaunted.life. That's I-N-F-O at undaunted.life. Follow us on Instagram and like us on Facebook and check out our website for everything else, including how to donate to keep more content like this coming your way. Just go to www.undaunted.life. And as always, we want to thank the band August Burns Red for allowing us to use their music for our content. The music on this podcast is our song Cutting the Tides, which is off their 10th anniversary re-recording of their album leveler the links are in the description i'm your host kyle thompson remember keep pushing back darkness keep forging spiritual mental and physical resilience keep seeking the lion of judah <laughs>